Welcome to the Fully Vested Podcast, brought to you by Dentons and the Chiro Society. As ever, there's a short health warning. This podcast is not designed to provide legal or other advice or give rise to a solicitor-client relationship. You should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Specialist legal advice should be taken in relation to the specific circumstances. The views and opinions expressed by those on the podcast are their own and do not represent Dentons, Kairos, or other organizations that they are from. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Fully Vested. I am Tim Brownstone, and once again, joined by Joe Altendorf and Joe Collingwood from Dentons. Joe's, hello. Hello. Hi, Tim. So we're going to jump straight into things today. Uh, this episode is going to look at the rights, responsibilities, liabilities, and obligations on a founder, on the directors of a company, and on the growing governance that a company will go through in its lifetime. And we spoke last time in our previous episode where we were discussing on employment law about the liabilities placed on a director but we didn't fully get into answering that question so i'm going to kick it over to one of the joes to pick that off and uh start us off today with the liabilities of a director right well when i start us off i think it's important to bear in mind i think a lot of early stage companies don't necessarily grasp that if you're an employee of a company you are working for that company um whilst you have obligations to that company as a general rule as employee you're kind of protected you know through various bits of legislation we talked about last time um whereas the directors are actually the organ of that business that collectively as a board make decisions um and those directors have statutory obligations so legal obligations uh, to various parties that are interested in the company. Uh, different obligations at different times. Uh, by and large, that's to act in the best interests of the company as an overriding duty. There's actually a whole list of duties that are then set out in the Companies Act. Um, and I think those really come into sharp focus if things go wrong, uh, by which I mean the company comes into or gets into financial difficulties. Um, and, and in those instances, the directors um, in certain circumstances could find themselves personally responsible. Okay. So I, I think to save us diving into a, a full list of the um, the rights and responsibilities there, if we perhaps shared a, a link to the, the Companies Act in, in the uh, bio yeah. the description, I think that would probably save us some time. But as you say, I think the important thing there to note is that most founders, when they're starting the company, don't really consider the, themselves directors. Mm. But by the fact that they're the only employees, they're the only shareholders, they are the, they are the company. They very much are. Bear in mind when they probably set up their business, you know, so and you might, um, you know, take advantage of, you know, making your own filings at company's house and filling out the paperwork online. And one of the questions is, who, who are the directors of the business? And, you know, you probably just, you know, rather happily tap in your own name and maybe yep. your, you know, two colleagues in your mum's garage who are helping you out. Exactly, that's it. And lo and behold, you know, 15 minutes later and £30 for company registration, there you are, <laughs> you're, you're, you've got your first directorship. And then you have all of the uh, the tax and uh, self-filing implications <laughs> that comes with it after that. Um, so that quite nicely moves us on into the sort of the insurances that a company should take out and the sort of legal protection that a company should seek. I'll start us off um, with sort of directors and operators insurance as we were speaking about the directors. Um, so Joe, if you could perhaps explain very briefly what that is, um, and then maybe run us through some of the other types of insurance that you know a, a young growing company might look to take out. Yeah, absolutely. So, so directors and officers insurance, as you say, um, is effectively um, insurance which is designed to cover a situation where 
a director potentially hasn't complied with some of the duties that, that Joe mentioned earlier, um, and as a result has a, a claim against them. The insurance might cover the claim itself, and it might also cover, depending on the terms of the policy, actually defending uh, a claim in that regard, even if the claim itself turns out not to be um, well-founded in, in, the, in the event. Um, in terms of some other insurances, which an early stage company might be, um, you know, sensible to think about taking out, um, if we're talking in the context of taking on investment, something that a, an investor might look at, particularly as you um, kind of move through the investment lifecycle, is um, what we call key man insurance. Um, I think Tim, you mentioned earlier that, that this is something that, that you've put in place in your business, and effectively, um, so as you'll know, the kind of concept there is to deal with the situation. You know, what happens if, uh, lo and behold. The, the key man in or woman in the business falls under a bus, say, and is, is no longer available. Um, uh, a lot of the time, you know, key knowledge and, and experience and, and expertise is vested in one or two people with early stage companies and uh, the company itself and also the investors in that company want to make sure that they're properly protected if something does go wrong. Mm -hmm. And those are quite, um, I would say, the more specific and certainly in our experience, later stage insurance that we've taken on. In terms of from day one, um, is there a requirement on having employee liability, um, product liability, if you have physical goods, etc.? Certainly, it, for us, we start off with a very cheap in the mum's garage insurance that costs next to nothing, then took on our first office and had our first sales to the US, and all of a sudden premiums doubled because of one T-shirt being sold out. Um, to a more sort of uh, litigious, litigious society. society. Yes, I was thinking of a, a nice way to say it. Um, but that, that's been something that has, you know, then since just grown with us as a company. But equally, it's probably one of the biggest things that I see when I've, you know, had colleagues or I've been in um, incubators that no one else has bothered with. Right. And it, it's kind of, I can see it as a very entrepreneurial thing of, uh, you know, well, you know, we all think we're invincible, but you know, what happens if the building burns down, et cetera. Sure. And look, I mean, Tim, you know, your business, in, in contrast to to a number of businesses that, uh, you know, be scaling, say, software companies, you actually do have a physical product, uh, you know, and so there are there are elements of having that physical product which wouldn't exist in, in a company that's selling an intangible. But I think, I mean, you've got to kind of, you've got to view all insurance uh, along the lines of what exactly it is that you're protecting. I know that sounds obvious, but you know, let me unpack that a little bit, you know, so um, if, if you, if you are a, a, a poor person with very few assets, you've got to query the wisdom of insuring your contents of, of your house, for example. Um, but then said, but that said, you might say, well, Although I don't have very much, if I lost it all, that would be catastrophic because for, for me to lose a small thing is actually more detrimental than for some with a lot to, to lose the same thing. Um, but, but then if you follow through the logical consequences in the early stage of a business, three individuals, nothing really but, um, you know, grit, determination and hopefully a good idea. Um, those individuals probably don't really have anything to protect. And in a worst case scenario, assuming they are operating through a company with limited liability rather than uh, as individual people, uh, and you know, so I, their own assets aren't at risk, yep. then in, in a worst case scenario, the company would fold and there'd be nothing left. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the reality is there's probably no one to sue them because they haven't yet engaged with any third parties. So as soon as the life cycle starts to move forward, 
you have engagement between the company and a third party, then potentially there's some rights and obligations which may or may not be fulfilled. Um, and then equally, as the business continues to grow, the assets of that company become larger and more significant, as well as, of course, the people who are dependent on that company for employment. So suddenly you've got yourself into a situation from being that kind of individual with nothing on the shirt on your back to now I've got, you know, a uh, a large house, you know, full of full of things in, in that house that I need to insure. And, and maybe I probably ought to take out some decent insurance to protect them. Yeah, and I think uh, for the benefit of our international listeners, it's also worth noting that in sort of countries like the US, there will be expectations for things like medical insurance because of how their healthcare system works, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously those of us in the UK, we don't tend to have to deal with that, certainly at an early stage. And I, I actually saw a satirical um, piece on a startup a little while ago where the uh, CEO was being quoted as saying, oh, well, we, we don't offer health insurance because we spent all our money on standing desks, but you can at least be comfortable <laughs> at work. Um, okay, so Joe, perhaps you could just give the listeners a little shopping list for these are the policies that you should be thinking of taking out. And if possible, if there's kind of a, a point by which they have to or really should have it, um, you know, indicate in terms of company lifespan, etc. Yeah, sure. So look, we've touched on directors and office insurance and, and key man or key person insurance. Um, other ones to be thinking about professional indemnity insurance, um, product liability insurance, if that's um, relevant to, to what the business does. Um, buildings and contents insurance. As soon as you have some sort of physical premises, that's always a you know a kind of an obvious one, but but sensible nonetheless. Um, in terms of life cycle and when when these things should be taken out, again, as, as Joe said earlier, it sort of depends on exactly what it is that you're insuring and and whether where the cost benefit comes in in doing that. If you have only a you know a couple of assets in a in a building, then maybe it's not worth it. But if you've got a fairly substantial office, then clearly um, buildings and contents insurance becomes much more important, much more quickly. And I think, look, the, you know, it comes into my kind of when are you going to engage with the outside world? When does this stop just being, uh, you know, rather insular pursuit of the of the founders to then, you know, being being engaged with the, with the outside world? And then, and secondly, that that also has a component of when investors come in, and so suddenly you're playing with someone else's money rather than just your own time, blood, sweat, and tears. And so, if if an investor were coming in, they might reasonably think, well, actually, it's. I need that person to be insured because I can see that that person is very critical to this business. And if they go, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Or equally, they might say, I don't want my total seed or series A investment <laughs> capital to be at risk if it turns out we get one pesky product liability claim. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth noting, we, Joe and I have advised on, on um, investments before when the investor has has specifically requested that you know key person insurance is put in, for example, as a condition of the deal. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I think the important thing there is to actually look at the circumstances and the practicalities around that, and uh, and that includes what the cost of taking out that insurance is, um, as opposed as against the um, the level of investment. And you know, just considering if you're taking a million pounds worth of investment, is it really worth fifty thousand of that going on key person insurance? Is that the best use of that money that you're taking on? Uh, and that's really a practical question that, that will change um, on each circumstances, but is a really important consideration. Okay. Yeah, we've seen that. That's actually been a really good point to negotiate on some of these things because the, the standard form draft of the agreement will say, it's a condition of us investing that this is there first. Right? You don't get the money until this is there. Mm -hmm. 
normally we then take that opportunity if we're acting for founders and say, well, go and speak to an insurance broker, get some sensible quotes as to what that insurance is actually going to cost. And then let's have a conversation on a collaborative basis with the investors as to this is what the premium is going to be. Do we actually want to do that right now? Or do we want to say, we'll do that within six months of the investment being injected? Or do we actually say that isn't necessary after all, you know, or, you know, so to, to you know, to rather than be debating the hypothetical of whether it is or is not a good idea to have Tim Brownstone insured, um, or rather to have the life of Tim Brownstone insured, to, to consider what that actually means in terms of, you know, the P&L of a company and money being scarce resources being allocated in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's always what it came down to us was the assessment of that risk versus reward. And the, the only thing I would say is that I just think very few founders consider, certainly in the early days, the it going wrong. You know, they might consider it going wrong from a financial perspective. But yeah. We don't really think about being hit by a bus. And it, but it's something that we really should be thinking about, whether it's to protect the company or whether it's to protect the people that were to inherit, you know, our share ownership thereafter. You know, those are all things that, you know, the latter point is more of a tax issue than an insurance one, but, you know, they're, they're things that should be considered. Okay, so I'm going to move on to a question that's been submitted by one of our listeners, which reads, what type of legal protections are actually necessary when in the early stages of a startup? Um, but I'm going to rephrase it slightly to what are the key areas that a founder should consider and seek advice upon when they're setting up their company? Yeah, so I think, look, Tim, we, we've covered a few of these in, in the podcast already, and um, it's worth sort of walking through the, the, the life cycle of a company. Um, the, the first thing that obviously you're going to have to do if you're starting a business is actually set up that company um, and take advice on, on how to do that. It's relatively straightforward and, and there's you know, ways to do it very quickly and easily, but that is something that, that needs to be done. Um, how does the company then engage with um, employees and with third parties? Um, you're going to need some you know, contractual relationships there. We talked uh, last time with Michelle about um, employment arrangements and so on. Okay, so what I'm hearing today, which I completely agree with, is that it's very necessary to strike the balance between what you're protecting, i.e. is there the assets, etc., to protect, and also what is the ability financially of the company to pay for these services because you, know, you, you can download templates and find them, but they're invariably not going to be completely suitable for for your company. Um, so it comes back to where are you first going to engage outwardly outside of the company's bounds? And where are you, you know, most likely to have issues? Yeah, ultimately. And look, I mean, you know, we could we could think of countless analogies, Tim, you know, of kind of when's it a good idea to get an electrician or when can you do it on a DIY basis? Um, and, you know, I wouldn't recommend if you weren't skilled in it, that you rewire your whole house, but you might feel comfortable putting a new plug on a side lamp. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and do, or to use the tech example, clearly, you know, you can get paint by numbers websites, you know, mm -hmm. or you can get someone to do a whiz bang website for you that's fully bespoke and so on and so forth. Same with any kind of apps or other bits of software. You can buy off the shelf software, you can get a bit bespoke design. Um, there are always going to be circumstances. And I think the reality is that 
often you can sense when it when you're outside of the comfort zone or when you, you can think this is too important i need some professional advice here um and and if your gut's telling you that then that's definitely the answer i would say that if you're doing something pretty significant for the business so if you know if it's a big customer order or if it's a material investment coming into the company or you're just about to you know go and do you know your first serious hire you know rather than just pulling in someone who's kind of you know a buddy or whatnot you know then that's probably the right time to say well look i'm going to take this opportunity to get some advice but how about you think about to what extent can some of that be used so you can repeat it so rather than just getting an employment agreement for tom dick or harry why don't you get a template employment agreement that you can then use for your next five hires yes. and it might not be that it's perfect for all of them but at least it's kind of getting you some way towards that you know same with like ip you know maybe if you're going to be an ip heavy company you needn't necessarily go out there and file a dozen patents straight away but maybe you could have a sensible conversation with an with an ip lawyer about what a plan might look like you know in accordance with your ip generation to then register over time in the right jurisdictions and so on and so forth i think what you said there about being sensible really hits the nail on the head and certainly my experience with particularly angel investors is that we've we're moving out of a time where you were just expected to tick the boxes and and that would mean okay i'll invest in your company but actually if you have a sensible reason for deliberately doing one thing and not doing another then that's equally as valid because you've shown that you've thought about it you've reflected on it and you've come to a conclusion based on logical reasoning as opposed to just I hadn't thought about it or I didn't have the money for it. Um, and that ties back actually, Tim, quite nicely to the first question that we had today, which is around directors' liabilities and you know what you have to do to actually discharge those and that description that you've just given and being able to point to a, a, a logical set of steps that you've taken and, and a reasoned conclusion um, you know, gets you a long way in actually making sure that as a director you've complied with those duties. Yeah. Okay, well, as we've brought directors back up into the conversation, uh, let's move on to the next question, again, submitted by a listener. Um, and th this one, I, I think we can have quite a big discussion about, but it the, the question reads, legally, what are the requirements for reporting to shareholders in a private company? And so if we start off with, is there a legal requirement? And then we can get into actually what you should and shouldn't do outside of the law. Yeah, okay. So let, the, the first place to start with that, Tim, is um, is the Companies Act, which um, is a, a relatively long piece of legislation which um, sets out various matters around governance of companies and, and what companies have to do to comply with, with law. Um, in the Companies Act, there are um, certain minimum levels of shareholder reporting that a company has to do. Um, in, in reality, that is limited to, to things like um, allowing them to inspect annual accounts uh, and to inspect um, minutes of board meetings. Um, the next place to look and actually um, probably where, where more detailed rights will be um, held is in a shareholders agreement or an, inv an investment agreement, uh, which we've, you know, we've talked about in our earlier podcasts about how those are put in place. Um, they tend to come in um, alongside investment and, and government relationships between investors and the company. Um, and those will set out probably a slightly more detailed list of information which a shareholder is entitled to um, and or which a, a company has to give to them on a, a periodic basis, usually quarterly or, or half yearly or maybe annually. Um, and that will be, you know, maybe more slightly more detailed accounts, management accounts, as we call them. 
But really, our advice here, Tim, is to um, make sure that a, a company is keeping an open dialogue with its investors, not just when it has to, um, but but on a more regular basis, so that uh, you know, as an investee company or a founder, you're not you're not that that person that only goes to its investors when it needs money. Um, you're also reporting the good news and, and keeping that dialogue open, building that relationship, so that that when when the need for funding does come. Um, you've already built that level of trust and, and the investor has that detailed level of knowledge and confidence in, in you as a company. Yeah, and I can uh, certainly attest to that as the last thing I did before I left the office this evening to come and record was to send out our Q1 update to our shareholders. And that's something that I've done really even since we had the friends and family was to go through the exercise of writing the quarterly report. And now it's more important because we actually have investors that will take it apart, scrutinize it, and mm. provide proactive feedback based on that. But that aside, I think it's a really, really good exercise for the CEO, in our case, the CTO and heads of departments as well, to be forced to take that stepward back and look at the company holistically then so the process that we go through is that the departments will feed up reports to myself which will then i will then compile into the quarterly report and then i'll send it out to each department for them to sort of approve their section and you know they'll they'll read each other's sections too so a it's make sure that everybody stays very up to date on what's going on in areas you know for us because we have both the commercial and the research sort of arms of the company um but really, most importantly, as you said, it's that it's that dialogue and it's a two-way conversation. It's a it's a complete feedback loop between investor and and company, and it's you know I think we've spoken about in the previous episodes how a lot of the times the people that are best equipped to help in a in a bad situation or best equipped to pat you on the back because they've been there too are your investors. Yeah. And so having that constant you know in, engagement. You know, it doesn't need to be every day, but as I say, at least on a quarterly basis, I think it's really important. And now that I'm, you know, in, in a position that I can make very small investments into, you know, other private companies and startups myself, you know, within my portfolio, 30, 40% report on a regular basis. The rest don't. You know, for me, I'm because I'm very busy, I'm a quite a hands-off investor, so I don't mind so much. But at the same time, I am far more likely to follow my money for those that do report on a regular basis because I feel more involved in the companies. Yeah. And I really like that idea of it being a strategic appraisal for the C-suite or you know, whoever's writing it, um, which I think is lost when it can be viewed just as, as an obligation, you know, one having to do their homework on time. Yeah. Um, but if, if it's tackled in that mindset that you've just described, then it is a double whammy. It's not just a, a homework delivery. It, it's a, it's a it's more internal. as looking at how we performed. Have we hit our KPIs? And do we feel proud to then actually you kind of say, well, look, we actually we said we're going to do this and we've done it. Well, and, and you know, obviously it's fantastic. And fortunately, in this report, I've I've you know reported some very good news to the shareholders. But equally, when it comes to new investors. A, it's great to be able to say, yeah, well, I've got three years worth of quarterly reports and then annual yeah. reports, you know, go, go and have a week's worth of reading. But also it, it gives them a flavor for who the management team are, how they've evolved, and probably most importantly, how they've handled the trickier situations. Because, you know, you're, you're reporting on it in that to your shareholders. And a lot of the times I feel like those reports have 
answered questions that would otherwise have been asked. Yeah. Because it's there, and as I said, it just gives you a real taste for what that company's doing. Um, and certainly a lot of the inspiration for my reporting comes from one of the you know companies that I've invested in who have a fantastic reporting structure. And, you know, not to, you know, we don't copy their format. But let, let, let's give the listeners some nuts and bolts. You know, how does it, what form, okay. how do you deliver it? What does it look yeah. like? Yeah. So our one will be a, a foreword from me, which is typically a page long and, you know, very three or four paragraphs, just quickly summarizing key events, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, then it moves into sort of the, the, the first meaty section is the financials, because often if you're in a rush, that's what you want to quickly be able to drill down into. So it will be uh, the actuals versus forecast, whether anything's changing, you know, forecasting forward to the end of the year, for example. And then within that, any either explanations of what's gone particularly well, or if we haven't hit targets, perhaps the deal's fallen through. A very light summary of that, uh, followed by investment recap. So if we have an open round, an update on that round, uh, if we're approaching a, an upcoming round or, you know, we're thinking about it, typically it's only a, a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs at the end of the financial section. Then we move into the sort of business development highlights, which most recently we've started splitting both the business development and the marketing sections between the different areas of the company. Now that we have our, both our medical and our sportswear brand live, um, as opposed to it, the medical being in the research phase. And so that will discuss the highlights and any news that's come in from the from the pipeline, basically on the BD side. Uh, so for example, new deals one, deals that, are, that have entered the pipeline that are of note, you know, we don't put everything in there because that would take a lot of time. Um, but let's just, because this is a good point too, is to, now I've got one of a one of the clients I act for has been through a round of crowd uh, funding mm -hmm. historically, and so they've actually got uh, you know a huge number of shareholders, and they take a mentality to any shareholder update of which they do many, um, that you know that is then public information. You know, yep. so you take a view which is anything that you put in the shareholder update will be leaked yep. or le you know, could be leaked. What happens if it is leaked? Well, we're actually comfortable with that being in the public domain and that mm -hmm. is therefore public information. Yeah. And, you know, that that comes on to, you know, without skipping the marketing section, because it's equally as important, um, comes into the, the research area. We never put any information that would count as a disclosure in there, not just because, you know, we, we I mean, we don't have that many shareholders, but also because we do know those reports might get shared by them or similarly they may be shared outside of an NDA with an in incoming investor before they've cho chosen to make that investment. Um, so in, in general, you know, those four sections, finance, business development, marketing, which typically covers um, things like either our, our online consumer side of the business, uh, but also going to events, engagements, etc., winning awards, press, and then the research typically is one of the biggest areas because you know we're doing some exciting stuff at Chimera, uh, which will cover grant news, ongoing project updates, uh, IP Im importantly. So the only IP that we will delve into is once the patent has been filed. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, it, it will be limited to the, the title or it will be a, a high level something. Um, and then you know a round off for me in the end. And sometimes we'll have other news such as if we've had a new hire you know this time around we've got 
uh, five new hires over the last quarter. So that's a fairly substantial part of the report. Uh, but ultimately, what it's designed to do, as I say, is that twofold thing, forcing myself and my management team to step back and look at the company holistically, and then to encourage a, a conversation between our investors and ourselves so that we can get their advice, get their input, and it, it sparks the conversation because a lot of the time, you know, investors, despite what you see in the, the TV and the films, they're not there to be, you know, a, a royal pain in the butt. They're, they're there to support us, but typically it's to proactively seek that support versus just expecting them to knock on the door and say, oh, you know, I heard through the grapevine that you've had an issue. Just talk to them directly and tell them if you've got an issue or if it's, you know, gone really well. So yeah, that that's where I would be when it comes to the uh, to the reporting side of things. So, do you guys have any? I guess uh, maybe one or two particularly good or particularly dire examples you've seen on either side of the table when it's come to that shareholder engagement prior to a deal that you've been working through. The mistake that I've seen um, made before is where companies overcommit to what they can provide in uh, an investment agreement, you know, so the regularity uh, or frequency of updates or, or just providing data which doesn't exist because you basically ended up with some template investment agreement that says you'll provide management accounts to set out all these things. And there's all these <laughs> list of financial criteria, like we actually don't even know how to measure that. And, yeah. or it's completely irrelevant to our company because we're not even, profit generating at the moment. So I can tell you what the answer is zero. <laughs> yeah. So there's a kind of just making sure that you're not knocking a square peg into a round hole. Um, but then and I think the good ones are people who are writing fluent, easily digestible updates um, of the variety that we've now as, as a public become very accustomed to through social media and the way that the news is presented to us in a bite sized fashion now. And so I think you know, the the trap that you can fall into is thinking this needs to look like a public company annual financial report yeah. and forgetting that actually it's often better to send out the one pager than send out something that looks like a, you know, 15 year olds trying to <laughs> write a FTSE 100 annual report. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely on, on that point, which is not so much import, important for the reporting to the investors but when you say about what's right for the company in, in terms of the time it takes to do these things i say i i do do the quarterly reports because it's only once every three months and it's a valuable thing to do but when it comes to our board reporting you know both our board reports and the minutes from the board meetings are all available for any shareholder to see at any time but we, we've moved from a, a monthly to a, a bi-monthly board meeting now. And as such, the you know the reporting for, for the board in advance of that, just purely because of the amount of time that it's taking. And you can end up with all the best will and intentions bogging yourself down in, mm. in due process so that actually the running of the company, which is ultimately what we're there to do, and moving it forwards does get a little bit hamstring by that. And you can provide, you know, like your one pager can just link to uh, an investor portal, yeah. you know, a, 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 a password protected mm -hmm. area of your website where 
further details are available. Yes. Um, but there's your bulletin, should you wish to read that yeah. on the train on the way in. Yeah, exactly. So, listeners, there we have it. The rights, responsibilities, liabilities, and obligations all covered off in circa 25 minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> Joes, thank you very much for joining again tonight. Producer Ed, thank you as well. And until next time, we will speak to you soon.